Thanks, Everly, and uh, good evening, everyone. It's great to see you all here this evening. Let me add my welcome uh, to the others, and uh, so glad that you are with us tonight. And if you're visiting with us uh, again, I'm really, really pleased that you're here. I hope that uh, your time with us is encouraging, helpful, that you get to know some of us as well. Um, here we are a week before Christmas. Uh, you kind of don't think things can change so quickly, and yet we should have learnt this year that things can change very quickly. So the, uh, the kind of beginning of my sermon seems completely out of place, can I just say, uh, as we, we start tonight, because what ha was happening at the beginning of the week is very different to what's happening at the end of the week. Um, so you'll see that as we uh, kind of kick things off, but God is a God who's in control of all things, uh, even what I write early in the week. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we reflect on uh, this incredible song sung by Mary, and we're particularly going to focus on the song tonight um, as we prepare our hearts and minds for Christmas and all that it's about. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the great joy of Christmas, particularly knowing that you and your great love and your faithfulness to your promises have sent your own Son, the Lord Jesus, into the world that we might be saved. Father, thank you that you loved us so much that you would do that. As we reflect on the joy of Mary tonight, help it to overflow in joy in our own hearts as we see all that you have done for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was going to say to you, have you felt the joy recently? That was the question I was going to ask. And you might see the, uh, the picture up on the screen. Because uh, this is the kind of news that was going on in the last week, right? Uh, families and spouses who had been kept apart for more than six months were now finally re reunited uh, at Perth Airport on the 8th of December after Western Australia finally, uh, the border finally came down there. And so, I don't know if you saw it, but I was, as I was watching the news and some other programs, there were scenes of joy at the airport as parents were reunited with kids and boyfriends with girlfriends, husbands with wives, grandparents with grandchildren, friend with friend. The isolation has been terrible. And the reunions, though, were bursting with joy, uh, short-lived though they may have been. Uh, Waiting, waiting, waiting all throughout this year, and finally the promise of borders opening uh, had been fulfilled. And the result was, well, the result in terms of some of the things I saw were squeals of delight. Uh, some broke into songs of joy. Uh, others just ran into the arms of loved ones and savoured the moment. But can I say, it's actually not odd to break out into song when you express joy. It's exactly what Mary, Jesus' mother, does when the reality hits her that she is to bear God's own son, the Messiah, the saviour of Israel, the saviour of the world. Now, we thought for a moment at least that the Premier of Western Australia was going to be the saviour of Christmas, uh, although he probably isn't going to be that anymore, but he's certainly not the saviour of the world. And Mary's song, though, as we read it, is a magnificent song of praise. And so we're going to have a look at it uh, together tonight, but because it does make very clear that Christianity is a religion of joy. Uh, the song breaks into two main sections. Uh, the first section, verses 46 to 50, are personal, uh, Mary's personal joy at what God has done for her. The second section, uh, section, verses 51 to 55, is corporate, the great things that God has done and will do for many. And so Mary's song starts with an expression of her personal joy. And the context of her personal joy is what we call the Annunciation. That's what they uh, talk about here. It's the appearing of the uh, angel Gabriel as God's messenger, announcing to Mary 
that God had chosen her, a virgin, to bear his own son who would rescue Israel and would rule over God's eternal kingdom. And so Mary struggles intensely to believe what she hears, and and who wouldn't? Uh, It's astounding what is being said here. It's miraculous. It's actually one of the reasons why uh, some people find Christianity hard to believe. But the angel reminds her that nothing is impossible with God. And that even her relative Elizabeth, who was old and barren, uh, unable to have children, was now pregnant as well with little John the Baptist. It's astounding, but it's not impossible for God. Because he is our creator and we are the creature. He's not limited by the things that limit us. He's God. He made us. And Mary actually understands that. And so Luke, who is the writer of Luke's gospel, who records Mary's song, he actually really highly esteems Mary. He recognises her lowly and humble position in the world. But he draws our attention to her and to her resolute confidence in God and his promises. And so he actually records um, Mary's response to the angel in verse 38. So notice there in verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the salvation of the world required Mary's willing cooperation. Uh, It's an extraordinary announcement, isn't it? And yet Mary believed that with God, all things are possible. If God said it, it will be. And so when she visits Elizabeth and finds her pregnant, as the angel said, and when she hears her words of confirmation, then her joy overflows in the song that we see there from verse 46 and onward. And it's a song that many generations of Christians have called the Magnificat. That's the name they've given to it. Mary knows God has blessed her. Uh, The great favour of God is upon her. And so let's just pick up what Mary says in this song, this song that she sings from verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, you might have noticed that the first part of Mary's song here is very personal. Uh, God has done something great for her, for this particular humble woman. Uh, In verse 48, he has looked on the humble state of his servant. In verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for her. And as a result of God's blessing, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, she says. But notice here that Mary is not the source of grace, as some claim. Rather, she is the receiver of grace. That is, God has dealt graciously with her in her humble position and she knows it and it fills her with joy. And every generation recognises that God's special blessing on Mary and so we worship God, not Mary. Some Christians at times have been tempted to worship Mary. But we are to worship God, not Mary. She is special in God's plans and purposes but she's not to be worshipped. But these are very personal verses, aren't they? And Mary is thrilled to be mother of the mother of the Messiah. 
However, Mary's joy is much greater than her personal circumstances because her song reveals that she is very aware that much more is actually going on in this situation. Now, Mary's personal circumstances are a pattern for the way in which God works in this world. Uh, His grace and favour to Mary actually express his character more generally. Uh, So God is a saviour who is both merciful and mighty. That's his character. And so Mary describes God as her saviour in verse 47, who has mercifully looked upon her humble estate in verse 48, and in his might has done great things for her in verse 49. And so Mary's personal circumstances reveal that God is both merciful to save and he is mighty to save. But it's a salvation that is far greater than her personal circumstances. And so in verse 50, God's saving mercy is for all those who fear him in every generation. And so let's just have a closer look at the second part of Mary's song. I'm just going to pick it up there at verse 51. She says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, before we look a little uh, more closely at the nature of God's salvation, I first want to ask, who is it for? Who is that salvation for? Because Mary clearly knows that God isn't just her saviour. See what she says there in verses 54 and 55? She says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. See, Mary's God and saviour was acting not just for her, but for all of Israel. He was actually fulfilling the promise of mercy that he had made 2,000 years before to Abraham. Right from the beginning, our human beings have rebelled against God. And in our sinful pride, every generation have turned their backs on him. And as a result, we actually live in a a broken world, a world of uh, wickedness, pride, of injustice and hurt and pain, sickness. And worst of all, every person is destined to stand before their maker one day as guilty sinners. You see, 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus, God made a promise. He made that promise to Israel through Abraham that he would send a saviour and that if they trusted him, he would forgive their sins, he would bless them, and for us, through them, God's blessing would extend to the whole world. Abraham and everyone after him looked forward to that day. For 2,000 years, God's people waited, and some may have thought that God had forgotten them uh, or had made a false promise, But Mary knows that that day has finally arrived in the birth of Jesus, even if it wasn't as they might have expected it, the way they might have expected it to happen. And it's through Mary's boy child that God's mercy has come for those who fear him in every generation. It was for Mary, it was for Israel, and it's just as much for those who fear him today. That That is, for those who trust him and believe him to be God. In other words, God's salvation is for people like Mary. 
for people who humbly trust in God. You see, that's the point, really, of verses 51 to 54, uh, if you cast your eyes back over those few verses, because it, it actually doesn't get more emphatic than this. Notice what he says there. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He has exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry. He has sent the rich empty away. He has helped his servant Israel. Who has done all this? God has. He is the saviour. That's his character. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves in this world. It's perverse to think that we can. I mean, God's salvation is his to give. And he chooses to give it to those who fear him, that is, to those who humbly trust in his mercy and power. Now, I'm not sure how many of you, but some of you may remember that horrific Sydney to Hobart yacht, Hobart yacht race uh, that happened a few years back where an unbelievable storm cost the lives of several competitors and many others had to be rescued. I think you can see a picture on the screen. Not going to happen this year. Um, but those who went overboard in this incredible storm in, during the city to Hobart had no hope of saving themselves, no hope of swimming to shore, no hope of waiting it out. Their only hope was a saviour, someone to come in and rescue them out of a completely hopeless situation. And it's the same for all people, can I say. Not because we're drowning in the water. But we can't do anything to save ourselves. Our only hope is a saviour. And that's who God is. God is powerful to save. What we need from God is mercy. Without God's mercy, we are lost and condemned in our own sin. But with God's mercy, he brings about a great reversal of fortunes. Now have a look at how he reverses things. Uh, in verse 52, he says, Those of humble estate are exalted. In verse 53, the hungry are filled. But that's only one side of the equation. The other side of the, of the reversal is that he opposes the proud. Uh, verse 51, he scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, he brings down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, the rich he has sent empty away. And just because God is great doesn't mean he's partial to great people. And just because he's exalted doesn't mean that he favours what people exalt. The so-called great ones of this world have no advantage over anyone when it comes to their standing before God. See, God's not impressed by wealth or power or pride. Why would he be? I mean, those are the things that often become substitutes for God, not pointers to him. You know, there are great numbers of people who will stand before God condemned because their wealth or power or pride convinces them that they don't need God's mercy. It's so easy, isn't it, for the rich and powerful to think to themselves, what can God offer me? Why do I want anything? What could I possibly need? It's why the wealthy and the powerful religious elite in Jesus' day didn't accept Jesus, but the poor and needy flocked to him. It's why it's hard to reach people with the gospel in affluent communities like ours today. It's why wealthy Australia has pushed God away. See, when we're successful in this world, we find it hard to think about another world. We don't realise actually how fragile our success is, even though this year has reminded us of that. 
And so our pride actually makes it so hard to fear God and to seek his mercy. But God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts and he blesses the humble who look to him for mercy. See, when God saves, a great reversal takes place. Uh, Mary understood that uh, and her confidence in God actually promises, in God's promises, mark her out as one of the great Old Testament believers. Uh, But more than that, she's actually one of the last Old Testament believers in the New Testament. Uh, She believed that in her womb, she carried the one who would bring about the great reversal that God had promised to Abraham 2,000 years before. And she was right. I mean, Jesus has fulfilled that promise now. But not necessarily as you would expect him to. See, Jesus, Lord of all creation, humbled himself in obedience to his Father. He was hated mistreated, wrongly accused. He was abused by proud and powerful men who mocked and beat him and hung him naked to die on a wooden cross. And here's the greatest and most unexpected reversal. While the Jews killed their own Messiah, God raised him from the dead. Though he was ridiculed and persecuted, God has seated him at, the right, at his right hand in heaven. Though he was considered weak and unimpressive, God has given him all power, all glory, all authority to rule over all things. And here's the other unexpected thing. As an Old Testament believer, Mary and many like her may have been waiting for a physical reversal of their fortunes to come out from under the rule of Rome, who had their foot on their neck, if you like, And while that promise still remains of a physical reversal of fortunes, one day we will enjoy all the wealth and power and glory of God's eternal kingdom. That is the promise of God to us. But right now what God is looking for is a reversal in our hearts. God's salvation reverses our present situation. We see it in the forgiveness of sins. We go from being dead in our sins to alive in Jesus Christ. We go from being God's enemies to God's friends. We see it in changed lives. We live behind lives of sin and guilt and shame and live in the freedom and joy of Christ. We see it in a reversal of values. God is not the least bit impressed by wealth and power and pride, and nor will we be. Instead, we come to value the eternal riches and goodness of God. Not the ego-boosting accumulation of wealth and power and status that is so fleeting. I had the great privilege of getting to know a guy whose whole world uh, came crashing down around him and he couldn't have been more happy about it. That's a bit of a bizarre thing really, isn't it? But um, this guy, his name is Mick. I won't give his full name tonight, but he uh, was a first-grade rugby league player for the, the South Sydney Rabbitohs. And uh, he, uh, he was, uh, had his first year in rugby league, playing for the Australian Rugby League, and he um, was the rookie of the year. So his star was on the rise. He was um, highly regarded. He had opportunity to make it big time in, in the National Rugby League. Uh, things were great. At the same time, he and his young wife had their own restaurant business that was going gangbusters. Um, it was just going off. And so everything about his life was good and on track and he was both uh, getting wealthy and getting fame and things were good. 
And in his uh, next year of rugby league, he had, an, he had an accident on the field. That meant when he saw the doctors, they said to him that if you play rugby league again, then it is most likely that you will die. You should not play rugby league again. And so in one foul swoop, his whole career of a, as a rugby league star was pulled out from underneath him. But he reasoned to himself, he said, well, I've got a, I've got a great restaurant business. He said, I'm going to throw myself into that. And so he did that, and in, in the next 12 months, through a series of, of events, his whole restaurant business went belly up. It, it failed, and he lost it all. And he came to a point where he had nothing that, he had, that he'd been living for. And as he stood and gave his testimony in the church that I was going to at the time, he said, it was the best thing that could ever have happened to me. He said, when, I was, when everything was going so well, I had a sense that God was was trying to get my attention. There was a sense in which if he was kind of knocking on my, the door of my heart, if you like, and I didn't have time for him. I didn't have, everything was going well. I had everything I wanted. I didn't need God to come in and mess it up. But he said, God came around to the back of my house and took out the whole back wall of my house. And he got my attention. And I'm so pleased he did because it's the best thing that could have ever happened to me. I lost everything, and it was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to me. Maybe you have felt that God has been coming around to the back of your house and taken out the back room of your house. I wonder whether you're willing to ask him what it is he wants from you. Is he trying to get your attention? Well, Mary's song teaches us so much about true joy, about lasting joy about substantial joy. I mean, her own experience is an example of the way that God is and it causes her to rejoice. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. Mary experiences the mercy and power of God and it causes her to rejoice. And it's in her rejoicing that God is magnified. And we want God to be magnified, don't we? Maybe we've forgotten what a great reversal God has brought about in us. Maybe we've forgotten his mercy towards us when we were his enemies. Maybe we find ourselves grumbling or criticising or being judgmental and petty over minor things. Surely we must reflect on the grace and mercy and power of, our God, of God our Saviour who has done great things for us. And when we've experienced the mercy and power of God in our own salvation, then it's natural that we will want him to be magnified. And the way that we magnify God is by rejoicing in him, by speaking to others of his goodness and love. We want people to know how great and good God is to those who will humble themselves before him. It's why joylessness is so out of place for the Christian. It makes our faith repulsive rather than attractive. It minimises God rather than magnifying his greatness. And God wants us to rejoice in him. But that doesn't mean putting on a happy face when we don't feel that happy or when things aren't going all that well. God simply wants us to rest in him, to trust in him, to be happy in his mercy. He's our saviour too, not just Mary's. 
And so let's relax and rejoice like Mary in God our Saviour. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you are a good and loving God, merciful and gracious, mighty to save. Thank you, Lord God, that you would love us so much that you would send Jesus into the world as our Saviour. Father, help us to recognise the great reversal that has taken place in our lives because of what Jesus has done, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life, a new way of understanding the world that we live in, knowing that you are in control of it all. And so, Father, help us to be those who live rejoicing in God our Saviour, just like Mary. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.